Good morning again, Evanston Bible Fellowship. It is a great joy to be with you again. For those of you who uh, perhaps have forgotten or have not been here a while, uh, my name is Kerwin Rodriguez, and it is my great joy to uh, be preaching with you for some time now. Uh, Let me ask you to bow your heads in prayer with me as we ask the Lord for help this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet us once again. We ask that you would speak a word to us. Would you prepare our hearts to hear from you? We thank you for your word that it does not return void. Guide us, I pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, In my time here with you, some of you have asked where my wife and son and I live. We live in Humble Park. In fact, we live in a uh, first floor, uh, two, three-bedroom apartment. There it is. Uh, It's a condo that the Lord has blessed us with, and it was a great answer to prayer. It's right in front of the park, and we have a great view into a front yard, not a backyard, a front yard. Uh, But we love this place. It has been an incredible answer to prayer. But there is one thing about our home that I'm still getting used to. Like I said, the condo is on the first floor, and our kitchen and living room have these large windows that look out into the street. It's nice whenever you want to let natural light into the rooms, but it's also awkward because you can't help but feel as if you're being stared at as people walk by on the busy street. Just the other day, one of our neighbors, Carlos, was walking by. Carlos is a nice man, an older man, and he passes our windows almost every day. But on this particular day, I was standing in the kitchen, and I noticed that Carlos had stopped right in front of the window and was just staring. I was uncomfortable, so I stared back. He didn't stop or move away. He just kept staring, so I offered a wave. He didn't wave back. So I waved even more vigorously, trying to get his attention until he uh, must have noticed me, awkwardly offered a wave, and kept walking by. It took me a little while to realize why Carlos was staring and why he hadn't returned my wave at first. Carlos wasn't staring at me, he was staring at himself. The thing about glass windows is they can point in two directions. I was looking through the window and saw Carlos. Carlos was looking at the window and saw himself. Carlos was looking at his own reflection and hadn't noticed me on the other side. The Word of God is like a glass window. You can read the word and look through it, seeing others on the other side who are caught under its convicting gaze. Or you can look at it and see yourself. Friends, I must confess, it is far easier to look into the word of God and see others on the other side rather than to see myself. Looking through the word of God is as simple as people watching. Stand outside for a moment or two and just watch the people walk by. Listen to their conversations. You know what it will realize, or what you will realize, what you will recognize, what you will observe? We are surrounded by people who do not know God. We are surrounded by sinners. 
Though we may share the same zip code, our neighbors do not share our knowledge of the living God. So whenever we read the Bible and find revealed in its pages a holy and powerful God, it is easy to see our sinful neighbors on the other side of the word. But more often than not, the scriptures point reflectively, causing us to see not others but ourselves. We become the objects in view. And when we are in view, we begin to see that we have much more in common with our sinful neighbors than we might have first assumed. Yes, you and I are sinners too. Before a holy and powerful God, the truth of God's word becomes a reflective glass so that like Carlos, we see ourselves rather than others on the other side. So in light of our sinful diagnosis, let us consider that God has called us, yes, even us, to be his witnesses to a world that is marked by sin. A witness is someone who has seen or experienced firsthand the power of the gospel. I want to suggest to you this morning that in order for you and I to be effective ministers of the gospel, we must first be affected by the gospel ourselves. Friends, the Christian who cannot acknowledge their own need for God's mercy in light of his holiness and power is a bad witness to God's love. The Christian faith affirms two very simple truths. God is sovereign ruler over all the earth. Therefore, he is our holy judge. But the second truth is that the Lord God Almighty is full of mercy. Together, these two truths affirm that the Lord God is God like no other. Look closely, and you will see reflected in his word our own sinful need before this powerful, holy, and merciful judge. Yet I must return to our present dilemma. I worry that the simplicity of these truths allows us to give consent without much reflection. Like the terms and conditions statement that appears whenever I update my phone, we can just check the box without any actual consideration. When was the last time you considered your own need for God's mercy? When was the last time you yourself was convicted of sin before God and stopped to confess and repent of it? God has called us to be his witnesses. But a witness that is unable to recognize his or her own need for mercy makes a poor witness of the gospel. I want to spend our time together considering the life and ministry of Jonah the prophet. If you closed your Bible or if you turned away for a moment, turn back there to the first chapter in the prophet Jonah. We're searching in a physical Bible. It's that collection of minor prophets after Isaiah and Jeremiah. Nestled next to Obadiah, you'll find the prophet Jonah. Let me just read verse 1 for us. Now the word of God, the word of the Lord, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. Our story begins in typical fashion. This is the story of a prophet. 
And like most prophets, the story begins with the word of the Lord. Land in almost any prophetic book, and it will begin like this. The word of the Lord came to Micah. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. When we read these words, we ought not be surprised. In fact, we should expect that this prophet would hear the word of the Lord and then deliver the word of the Lord to his intended audience. Prophets were the mouthpieces of God. They were commissioned and called by God to declare a word from him. The true prophet of God spoke as a herald, making announcements that came directly from God to his people or even to foreign nations. If you heard a prophet speak, it was as if you were hearing the very word of God. And so on a few occasions, the prophet received a word from God, even to foreign nations. These messages of judgment reminded both the people of God and the foreign nations that God was the one who was sovereign over all the earth. All powers and rulers eventually would have to bend their knee to the Almighty God. So when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, For the people of Nineveh, we ought not be surprised. Nineveh was a city belonging to the Assyrians. These were the enemies of the people of God. Like other prophetic oracles against foreign nations, we should expect that God declares judgment against evil cities like this city of the Assyrians. This was a city full of sin, a city full of violence and injustice. Thus, a city opposed to the very way of God. So, God commissioned his prophet Jonah to go and speak a word of judgment against this wicked city. Get up, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. But if you and I were reading this book for the very first time, there should be something that shocks us at the turn of events in verse 3. Look there with me. There the verse begins, as we might expect. After hearing the word of the Lord, Jonah gets up. But he does not go to Nineveh. He goes as far as possible to get away from the presence of the Lord. Take a closer look at his travel itinerary. Instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah goes down to Joppa, finds a ship to board to Tarshish. Many of us hear these places and our minds go blank. We don't have any points of reference for imagining what direction Jonah takes. By the time of his ministry, Israel had already been split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom. Nineveh was the nation of Assyria, and the nation of Assyria was just northeast of Israel. So, Joppa, where Jonah ends up going, is the southernmost part of Israel. So, he would have to go south to go in the exact opposite of where he is supposed to be going. Let me put it this way. If I received a call and was asked to go and preach the gospel to a city in Indiana, it would be as if I drove all the way to California to get on a boat to go to Tokyo. It's in the exact opposite direction of where I'm supposed to be going. Here is Jonah going as far away from the Lord as he can possibly go. 
to avoid the call of the Lord. There's something about this verse that keeps getting me. He tries to get away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. He should have known better. There is nowhere you can go to escape from God. And yet he tries. Despite Jonah's attempts to get away from God, the Lord throws a great wind upon the sea. And a mighty storm comes upon the boat where Jonah is hiding. The storm was so great that it threatened to tear the ship into pieces. Pay attention, Jonah. The Lord is all-powerful. The earth is his footstool, and he commands the wind as he pleases. I forget sometimes when I read this story that Jonah is on a boat with other people. Sometimes in our imaginations, when we read the beginning of this story, we assume that Jonah went and rented a one-man boat and is going on his merry way to go wherever he wants to go. But there are many other people on this boat. In fact, the narrative changes perspectives, leaves Jonah where he is at the bottom of the boat, and instead remains with the sailors. These sailors whom I imagine had a little bit of training and experience, were shaking from the cold and fear during this storm. The entire deck of the boat is a flurry of frantic activity. Men are crying out to their gods. Sailors are grabbing whatever cargo they can find to hurl it over into the sea, trying everything they can to preserve their very lives. And despite all of their prayers... All of their efforts, the storm will not let up. The waters are raging against this boat. The storm beats its arms against the vessel. The captain of the boat knows that it cannot withstand this beating for much longer. Can you see their terrified faces? Can you make out their expressions as these men are faced with the certainty of death? Do you know whose face you cannot see? The face of Jonah, the disobedient prophet of the Lord. The captain of the boat notices the same thing. He does a quick count of everyone who is on the deck struggling, and and his count every single time is off by one. So he counts the heads again, and again, it is off by one. Where is that passenger we picked up along the way? Where is that one that we got in Tarshish? So the captain goes looking for Jonah, and to his surprise, he finds the prophet asleep at the bottom of the boat. Again, you know this story. You've heard this story told before, but I want you to hear this story as if you're hearing it for the very first time. Here is a man in the middle of a storm asleep at the bottom of the boat. The captain can't believe it. Jonah is fast asleep while everyone is struggling for their collective lives. It takes a certain frame of mind to be able to sleep during these kinds of conditions. Now, I'm a professor. I've seen people sleep through a lot of things. (laughs) But I mean different kinds of conditions. No, not this kind of storm. I mean through the condition of running away from God. 
A person who is not kept awake by the conviction of the Holy Spirit while actively disobeying God is in a dangerous frame of mind. There might be someone here today, in fact, who needs to hear what I am saying. If you profess to know God and are able to persist in sin without remorse, I pray that you are kept awake by the Spirit of God. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. After finding Jonah, the captain asks, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up and call out to your God. Did you hear it? Did you hear what he said? Get up and call out. The captain echoes the call of God on Jonah from verse 2. Get up and call out. Perhaps Jonah was too groggy groggy to hear it. But notice the irony here. The prophet of God, who is supposed to be the mouthpiece of God, is hiding from God. But this pagan captain, who does not know God, echoes the very word of God. Call out to your God. Maybe your God will help us in this situation. We don't know what Jonah did next. We don't know how long it took him to stumble up onto the deck, but we can assume that Jonah did not call out to Yahweh. The storm continues to beat against the boat. The sailors have never seen a storm like this. This storm is so great that the only reasonable explanation for it is that it is divine. They call out to each of their gods, but their situation is not improving. What in the world is happening here? Who has provoked a powerful God against us? Sometimes it is a community of believers, or it is a believer who does great harm to the community that we've been placed in. Here, Jonah is doing great harm to these pagan believers, and they're asking, who has done us this great harm? And so they gather everyone together and they do what they only know to do. They cast lots to determine who is to blame for this situation. And as we all expect, the lot falls on Jonah. The sailors sailors look at each other, then they look at Jonah. And with sudden indignation, the sailors say to him, what is this thing that you have done? Did you hear it there? We'd have to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3 to remember the word of the Lord when he said to the first man and the first woman, what is this thing that you have done? When they were in sin and hiding from God. What is this that you have done? In the mouth of God, it is a merciful question. A question that offers an opportunity to confess and repent. In the mouth of the sailors, it is a question of utter distress. Why have you done this to us, Jonah? What have you done? Why are you hiding from God? Jonah has not said anything this entire chapter. Until we get here to verse 9, he says this, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
Jonah rightly attributes the storm to the work of the Lord God. It is he who is the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. He is not just any God. He is the Lord God, the covenant God of Israel. But this confession does not absolve Jonah. It points to his own stupidity. He knows that the earth belongs to the Lord. He knows that the sea is his. He cannot escape his judgment. God is all-powerful. Yet perhaps the most condemning part of Jonah's speech is the first part. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Jonah identifies himself with the people of God. Worse, he claims to fear the Lord. And yet he is in active disobedience, running and hiding from God. All he needed to do was humble himself before God, but he was unwilling. Compare the two responses to God's power in the narrative. The pagan sailors are terrified by the mighty display of God's power. Jonah, the one who claims to fear the Lord, is as cool as a summer breeze. Look at his declaration again. It has a self-assured tone, a self-confidence that says, I belong to the people of God. I am a worshiper of the Lord. And yet he is in active disobedience to the Lord. Now we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Followers of God can take great comfort in this incredible assurance. But look, let me tell you something. Standing in the assurance of God's covenant to Israel while actively disobeying God is something entirely different. How dare you, Jonah? How dare you confidently stand before God while living in active disobedience to God? He offers his identity with the people of God as if it were licensed to continue in his rebellion. Imagine you were standing before God in active disobedience to God, and he asked you, what is this thing that you have done? What do you think he might say to your response if you held up a bulletin from Evanston Bible Fellowship and said, I am a member, I am a regular attendee of Evanston Bible Fellowship. I have been to all of the small groups. I have been to the ministries. I am a worshiper of the Lord. And yet you are in active disobedience to God. How might the Lord respond to you? Hear me on this, friends. Our statements of faith, our attendance, these are not excuses to sin without remorse. Our religious affiliations do not give us permission to live unrepentant lives. Even after Jonah presents religious status, the storm continues its assault against the boat. Knowing that he is to blame for all that is happening, the sailors turn to Jonah for answers. What shall we do? Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Now, if you're reading the story for the first time, you might think to yourself, how noble of Jonah. He offers his life for the lives of many. That's not what Jonah is doing here. Jonah is taking a certain way out. He's saying, kill me. That's the only way this will change. You have to wonder, was there any other option? For, forget the big whale that's coming at the end of this story. Pretend you don't know about that because Jonah doesn't know about that. And yet Jonah says, 
throw me over to die. His blood will be on the hands of these pagans. Again, Jonah is not blessing these individuals. He is bringing them great harm. But did Jonah have any other option? Of course he did. He could have done the very thing that these pagan sailors had done. He could have cried out to God. He could have humbled himself before God and said, Lord, forgive me. You are all powerful. You make demands on my life, but you are also all merciful. You are full of mercy and love and grace. That's what Jonah could have done. These men try to save Jonah, so they row and row and row, but they come against the reality that God is all-powerful and we are powerless to save ourselves. They keep rowing and they cannot do it. And so they relent and they say to God, please do not hold this man's life against us. And they throw Jonah overboard. Now you know what happens. The storm stops. These pagan sailors worship Yahweh. They make vows to the Lord because they were able to see that not only is God all-powerful, he is also full of mercy. Meanwhile, the prophet of the Lord is sinking deeper into the sea. I wonder if there is anyone here this morning who is sinking deeper into your sin. Is there any other option? There is. You can cry out to a powerful God who is full of mercy, who will receive you, who will accept you, who will forgive you of your sins. Because many of us find ourselves to have far more in common with the prophet Jonah. But there was another man who our Bible tells us about. This was a man who was also called by God. He was sort of a prophet of God. He was the son of God. And he did not break from his call to God, but he was willing to accept that call to speak words of, of freedom to those who were captive in their sin. He was willing to give his life, not because he himself was to blame or because he was full of sin, but because he wanted to free the captives from their enemies. This Jesus of Nazareth gave his life willingly on that cross. He died for you and I, for sinners like you and I. And then on the third day, the earth gave forth his body because in the power of God, he was raised on the third day in power and in victory so that we might see God and say, he is all powerful, but he is full of mercy. Call out to this God. You and I are called to be witnesses. Might we witness the power the forgiveness of this great God. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you that you have called us. And even in that call, Lord, you are merciful when we disobey you. Lord, I pray if there is anyone in this room who has not called out to you in their sin, that they might do so today 
that they might find in you not only an all-powerful God, but a God who is full of mercy and love and grace. Might we bend our knees before you, King Jesus, and see that we are welcomed as your children. Lord, would you convict us of sin, but would you welcome us as your children when we repent of our sins? We thank you, Lord, and we love you, and we pray these things according to your Son and the grace that we have in him. Amen.